much cool shit happened from showing a photo of a cow. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, so much. Like, it just opened the doors. The women were, like, doing this. Like, how much milk do you get out of them? And I was like, well, we don't milk them. And they're like, oh, that's why they're so fat. Like, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, it was just phenomenal. So cool. I got offered a kid. Someone, like, offered me their child. <laughs> like, just... Funny things occurred. I got a few marriage proposals and yeah, just good times. <laughs> <laughs> what is up, everybody? Welcome back to the In Situ Health and Fitness Podcast. On today's episode, I have Kathy Gabriel back for round number two. Yes, this is the second time we've had Kathy on the podcast. She was first on the podcast in episode 83. And she did not disappoint. That was a great interview. Very inspiring. I've spoken about this on the podcast, how I was inspired by her last episode to go out and achieve more. And this episode, she does exactly the same. So in the last episode, Kathy told us her life story all the way up to going back to the Mongolian Derby for round two. Obviously, she has done that race now. I won't spoil too much. It was a great story. She absolutely killed it. But it wasn't her placing that made her feel like she won the race. It was her experiences along the way. Amazing stories how she got to connect with the locals. Since the Mongolian Derby, Kathy has started a photography business. We dive right into that and what inspired her to chase her passion and a bunch more. I'm sure you're going to love this episode as much as I loved interviewing Kathy Gabriel for the second time. Let's get into it. I know you guys have been loving the podcast lately. Why? Because podcasts generally grow from word of mouth and this podcast has been growing massively over the last couple of months. So I can't thank you all enough for your support on this show, sharing, commenting, giving us, giving us feedback and most of all giving us a five-star review and positive comment wherever you're listening. That does help us out a lot to reach a lot more people to help them on their health and fitness journey as well. So if you haven't or if you're new here, please take the time to give us a five-star review and a positive comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate it. Kathy is going to appreciate it and it really does help us grow this podcast. Thank you again and let's get into the interview. Well, Kathy, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So for everybody listening, episode 83, we had Kathy on the episode and it was a chat about her journey to uh, her race that she done over in Mongolia. Um, so if you if you haven't listened to that, I recommend going back and having a listen to that. It was a great episode. Um, a lot of takeaways in there. I really enjoyed that episode. I enjoyed the chat. So I'm excited for this one to see how the race went. But not only that, uh, what you're up to now. So I've been following you on socials and I love all your content. And it's cool to see how you've transitioned into a couple of different businesses. Uh, yeah. This this podcast, we've, we started, we've actually started getting a few creators and small business owners listening to the podcast. So I'm actually excited to dive into that business side of things as well. But let's, let's talk Mongolia. So the last time oh we spoke, God, yeah. like I said... Um, you were just training. I think we spoke to you three or four weeks out from you leaving. Yeah. Tell us about it. How did it go? Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, it's so hard to describe, hey, because 
I didn't think that this race could give me like the life changing sort of experience that it gave me the first time. And um, the second time round, like, yeah, I just didn't think that experience would happen again, but it's happened more and enriched my life in a way that I just, I didn't think I could get more from this race. And what I've now come away with has just made my heart and my head sort of explode in a way. Yeah, I'm just, like, it's a ch- it's a very challenging race, but, like, we'll get into it in a bit. But um, all the training in that prepared me in such a way that made it that I could enjoy the entirety of the race because my body was so strong and so fit that I just had a blast. Like, every oh, that- photo, I'm just, there's a massive smile on my face and I'm having a great time. And, like, if I'm riding with someone, they're, like, in pain and misery. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah! Hi, guys. <laughs> so, yeah. And so... It's just like, obviously, like, we all know that training's so important, but training the right way is so important. And I just, like, like came away so proud of myself and my body and really learnt the lesson of, like, what you put in is what you get out um, in such a mammoth way. And, yeah, so the, like, Mongolia was just, it's just what Mongolia was when I left. It's such a welcoming, lovely, beautiful country and community and families and and that was still there. And then, of course, the horses. Oh. Um, so Phenomenal. Has, has Mongolia changed much? Because last time you were there, it was 2018, and you planned yes. on going back the year after, but obviously COVID yep. and all that sort of stuff happened. So what, it's three, <laughs> three years later, you, Jeff, four, sorry. <laughs> four, three or four years later, has much yeah. changed there? Yeah, it's um, it's really getting modern, really modern. But, like, in a funny way. So, um, like, when you're in the city, you're in a city, but you'll see, like, a Starbucks sign hanging up and you'll be like, oh, I'll go get a coffee. And you'll walk into it and you'll open the door and it's like, I don't know, say it's like an accounting firm or something. Like, it's not what the sign is, but they're just trying to adopt Western things. (laughs) And um, you'll be like, what, is coffee? And they'll be like, no. (laughs) like why have you hung a starbucks sign (laughs) but it's just what they do like there's apple signs like like for like iphones and that like the apple emblem hanging up Mm -hmm. on buildings um not that i was looking for an iphone over there but again it's just like they're just like hanging up these cool western symbols but it's got nothing to do with what the shop is or what they're doing um but yeah (laughs) but yeah because i'm like the Obviously, the other riders and that came out with some ripping stories because they're like, yeah, we walked into this shop that had this side and then they just <laughs> had this random experience. But, yeah, the city itself is just a city. But um, so when I went over, I went over, um, I was there for a, a month all up and the first two weeks I was doing a heap of photography and sort of just being a tourist. But they had their big what's called a Nadam Festival, which is like their annual festival. It's it's been running for like 2,300 and something years. Wow. Um, because like when you go into the history of Mongolia, they're a very culturally rich uh, society and um, horses, wrestling and archery are their three main sports. And they like, like have those sports as like they raise them up, like it's their honour to do those sports. And it's something that they just carry on generationally. Um, so the Nadam festival is yeah, wrestling, archery and horse racing. And so obviously I went out, it's like 
an hour out of town to this big area where they do all the horse races and that. And I was doing a heap of photography and that. Um, but like, it's their massive. I don't know what you would even compare it to in Australia. I don't think there's anything you could compare it to. But they basically the city shuts down. Like it's just nothing. Like we had to go out and buy stuff to have in our rooms to have like some supplies because like it, like it just everyone leaves town because it's an ended arm holiday. Um, so it goes for like five days and everyone just goes out into the countryside or they go to these big horse races and that that occur. Um, but in the city, you'd be like in the main CBD and because I had a friend in an apartment, I'd be like walking to his place at like 10 o'clock at night and there'd be like eight dudes on horses just like walk past you <laughs> it's just like oh yeah no i am in mongolia like yeah <laughs> so, so do, yeah. do they time that for the race as well so do they intentionally do the race after that no well no they try to do it a bit after because it can be a bit of a shit show occur because so much shuts down and so mm. when like especially like the crew organizers come in trying to prepare stuff um, and if they can't purchase things that they need and also like vital people, so like translators and drivers and cooks and all that, if they're not there, they're like, well, where are they? But you've got no way to like get in contact with them. So no, they like it is, what was the race was a, a week and a bit after the Nadam, but normally the, the horse race is um, like the Mongol Derby horse race, not the Nadam one, is normally about three weeks after the Nadam. Um, but because, like, COVID and all that, they had two races in this one year to make up for the three races that they missed. So, yeah. yeah. So but, um, has the rate – first up, give everybody that doesn't know and hasn't listened to the previous podcast a rundown of the Mongolian Derby. Yeah, so the Mongol Derby is a 1,000-kilometre horse race across Mongolia. Uh, it was created – um, off Genghis Khan's postal system, which is like a similar postal system that a lot of people can relate to is the American Express. So it's like Genghis would get a letter, write it out and give it to his messenger and the messenger would hop on a horse and ride as fast as he can to the next messenger station and he would swap horses and then take another horse and ride as fast as he can. And so Genghis Khan had a postal system that was super efficient and he could get a message to his other lieutenant way all the way over on like the European shoreline, for example, in just a matter of days. And that's what this um, horse race is based on. So it's a thousand kilometers. Um, and we change horses every 30 to 40 Ks. Each horse is only ridden once and that's it. There's over, I think in this race, there was over 1600 horses involved in the race all up. Oh, and yeah. um Mongolian families accommodate us. So each horse station or horse changeover is actually a Mongolian's like home. But Mongolians are nomadic, so they move across the countryside all the time throughout like the seasonal changes. And so that's how the course is developed over the relationships that the Derby have. So the the race is always different because Mongolians are always living in a different spot depending on what the season's doing for grazing their herds. So that's how the race comes about. And that's how the distance is. Sometimes you might ride a distance and it might be like from one horse station to another, it's 28K. Um, but one leg we did on this race, it was like 46K. So it was a really big stretch that we had to do because they moved um, halfway through the race. One of these families moved back. And so, yeah, we had to like change coordinates to head to where their now new home was. But, um, yeah, so that's what the, the race is about. Um, it's a like you apply for it online and then you get put through to an interview process to see if, like, 
what kind of personality and horse type person you are to see if you would suit this sort of a race. And um, from there, you're then accepted. So normally it's about 35 riders are accepted internationally each year into this race. But because of COVID and the debacle that that caused, there was 57 in my race. Um, because they had to basically try and run three groups of races in two groups. So there was 57 in mine and I think 56 in the next race that occurred a few weeks after me. Um, so, yeah, so that's what the Mongol Derby is. And it's 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 all about the capacity of, like, the, the human body and what you're, like, capable of doing. It's all about the human endurance and not the horse because the horses are – very capable of doing the distances that we ride them in so it's really a test of us because each horse we hop on is fresh but we're not (laughs) you get progressively more and more tired and more defeated as you go on and the horses can get more wild almost as you go on um so So, yes that's what the derby derby is yeah so 100 questions (laughs) but the first time you did it you couldn't actually finish because of an injury this year you finished how'd you go were phenomenal um you know like there's so many aspects of the derby that i love but one of them is like the crew have become like your family and as soon as we started catching up with crew members when i landed in mongolia all of them said to me like geez kath like you just look like a different person this time around like not only like mentally but like physically especially the medic that actually treated me for my bad shoulder he said you're so strong like you just look so fit and i said yeah like that was the goal <laughs> and I was like I ain't my body is not failing me on this race like no way so that was like the difference from last time to this time was just like so so different in how my body physically was um oh, I forgot what, what was the question um oh how well, did I go this yeah, time yeah. around yeah? yeah yeah sorry um yeah, so physically, you know, from the get-go, the people that had seen me in the previous race were already like, wow, like, Kath's, like, totally different this time. And then when we started at start camp and, you know, prepping for the race, mentally, like, my my mind shifted into that zone of being competitive, <laughs> more or less. I was still more – it was still me. I'm more than happy to help absolutely everyone. But, you know – I was just a different rider this time. I wasn't just like, ah, oh, whatever happens, happens. Like, no, this time I was like, no, like I've got a game plan, you know, and I know my body's physically capable. So now it is up to me mentally to do this the right way. Um, so, yeah, so that's how, it, how like the race sort of started for me. Um, the first horse you're given out of, you're given, you're not, um, you don't get to select. And then after that, every horse, it's your ability to pick a horse at every different horse station. And that's like another big key part of the Mongol Derby and how you can go, you know, like if you're not a very confident rider, you can actually walk up and down those horse lines and pick a horse. It's pretty quiet and it won't be very fast, but it'll get you there pretty safely to the next horse station. Um, but because I was riding quite competitively, I'd look for very fit horses and also horses with a bit of a wild personality to them. Cause normally they would scoot along really well. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of like how the progression of the derby went. And then the, the the big factor that I was so surprised at, which I touched on already, is my body was right up there and ready to take whatever I threw at it. And I was just so, well, not lucky, but like, yeah, the preparation paid off. I just physically was no dramas at all. Yeah, I so felt it, awesome the whole way through. 
It definitely wasn't luck because for those that don't know, I wrote Kathy a program leading up to the this one and she was very dedicated. She did every single workout the best she could. She put in the hard work and that isn't luck. Like you put in that work. And yeah. not only that, you were doing a lot of mental strategies. We even spoke about this in the last podcast before you went on the race um, about making sure each pit stop was perfectly executed so you didn't waste any time. So how many pit stops in the day would you have and how did you go executing, like what was your process of executing a perfect pit stop? Yeah, so it varied because like depending on each horse you rode, like each leg would go differently. So some days, I think the most I did in one day was four, like four horse changeovers. And then one day there was only three and I got a couple of vet penalties. So they're like hour delays. So that like held me back a bit, but my pit stops were on point. And that's when I made up a lot of my ground because I'd get to like in the morning, you're fluffing about, rolling up your sleeping bag and all that and getting kit ready and you can have breakfast and then you hop on a horse and you go. And so you like hop on your horse and you do your first leg for the day. And a lot of people would get to that next horse station and then fluff about and they'd go and, oh, see if there's more food to eat and, oh, I might go to the toilet and they'd just like wander around, whether I would get off vet my horse and then just go pick a horse, hop back on and go because my water's full from the morning and it's always cool in the morning. So you're not guzzling heaps of water. Um, you're already fueled your body up. You've already like got all your carbs in from the morning. And I would overtake like five, six people just in a flash because everyone's like, yeah, going off trying to do things. And like other little things I would do is when you're coming into a horse station, because you've got to pulse your horse's heart rate down, is I'd get off my horse for a K or so out and lead it in. And um, so another strategy, like if it was appropriate, I'd do a wee then before getting to the horse station. So while the horse is pulsing down, I'd quickly do a bush wee out the flat and walk in. And then that would stop the another time thing of me wanting to use the toilet oh someone's in the toilet and standing around and waiting you know like I've already eliminated that and I, that would just save me so much time but I'd always fuel my body as well like at lunchtime I would always stop and eat because a lot of people fail in this race from just going and going and going and going so a lot of people in the front pack will push really hard for the first three days but then they just fall to pieces because they've um they've totally out of calories and their body can't keep up and then they like I would catch people and be like oh I thought you were going so well like what are you doing and they're like oh we just couldn't keep couldn't keep the pace up so fueling was important as well and obviously hydration because a lot of people don't drink enough water and it's hammered into you and they still don't drink enough water so I would always have my bladder full in the morning and that would depending on the heat of the day but that would get me through one horse station change over quick and then the next horse station or to absolutely fill my bladder up again and um yeah so it was just like that was like my strategy and then at night time when you finish then you can flounder about and worry about whatever you want to worry about because you don't you there's no ride time left so then you can dick about and bandages or whatever or creams on your chafe or whatever's going on personally and that but yeah just so many people just get lost in sort of they slow down at a horse station and then it's the body starts aching and they go oh I don't know if I can be bothered hopping on this next horse and you just like just hop on go yeah. you don't even think about it like yeah so is there a limit on how much you can ride each day well there's a time restraint so 
the writing time was from seven o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night. And then every minute you ride past ride time at night is a two minute penalty. So say it's like 6.50 and you've got 10 minutes of ride time left, but you're two Ks out from the horse station. That's going to take you 25 minutes to get there. And you look at your time and you go, right. For me, I would be, it's totally worth me getting a 15-minute time penalty, which would then be a 30-minute time penalty because I get the horse into the next horse station. He's done. He gets put out to graze. No worries. I get a half hour sleep in in the morning and then I pick a fresh horse and I go. Whether some people were dead set against on riding overtime and they would just camp wherever the time stopped. And that would mean that then you would have the task of, saddling your horse and hopping on them in the morning and you'd have to care for the horse all night like because you don't want to lose them and the horses are very wild horses and um it can be very very difficult as a westerner to saddle the horses and to hop on them especially when they're fresh because they're not used to us at all like we're wearing helmets and we're wearing western clothes and we've got hydration packs when mongolians don't wear that stuff and they don't smell like us and they don't interact with the horses like us and the horses know that so it's a very big risk to camp out and to have to do all that stuff in the morning on your own because if you fall off and your horse takes off, you've got to go and find your horse. And that can be hours and hours of trying to get that horse back again. So, so yeah, so sometimes I would take a time penalty hit in, the, in nighttime for riding overtime um, just to make my it, the job so much easier the next day. Um, so so that would be part of it. One time I got a two-hour time penalty because my horse went lame and he started limping about seven Ks out from the horse station I was getting to. Um, it was nothing to do with me. He had what's called mud fever on the back of his hoof. So it's like a little scabby thing forms from constantly being in mud. And when I was riding him, it split open. So it caused like him pain. And so when your horse goes lame, that's it. Hop off. You, you don't ride your horse. You can't keep sitting on him, pelting him along because that's like cruelty. Um, and I was like, bugger, like now I'm going to get in late to the next horse station. And then because he was lame, it took me a little bit of effort to lead him in. So I got into that horse station. I think it was an hour and 10 minutes past shutoff time. So mm-hmm. I got, I was, yeah, it was a two hour and 20 minute time penalty I got slapped with for that. But the horse was, then the horse was where it needed to be. It was with the vet. It could get the cream on its hoof checked over so the herders know their horse is fine um it's just the right thing to do but i I did have the option there was a girl along the way where i could have pulled up and spent the night but then you've still got the uh, uh, like the ordeal then goes on to the crew members that they've got to now get a truck to get to this horse to then pick it up to take it to where it needs to go so yeah so you sort of just like like juggling like your time and everyone juggles their time differently but it's all part of the the game in a way of the derby you know like what works best for you what doesn't work best and yeah yeah all part of the race um yeah so it's a 12 hour riding window how many hours would you be riding in those in that 12 hours probably a, a 11 of those hours yeah. i'd be riding because wow, like my changeovers if the horse is vetted through instantly my changeovers were very quick and i'd have about a 20 minute lunch break when I stopped at midday. So yeah, probably about, yeah, 11, like, yeah, 10 and a half, 11. Cause sometimes like you get in and your horse's heart rate might be say 66 beats a minute and it needs to drop down to 56 beats a minute. So you might have to stand with your horse and let it graze grass and cool down a bit. So that might take 10 minutes before he's um, vetted through and then you can go pick your next horse. So 
Um, that is a massive effort. So for everybody listening, it's not like they're just horses, like you said, that we're used to, that they are wild horses. Um, so um, how many how many days did it take to finish the race? Yeah, so oh, it should be simple to explain. But in 2018, they had different riding times and then they shuffled the riding times up for us this time round, trying to make it more efficient for crew members after riding times to get around. So initially the riding time started at 7 o'clock in the morning and finished at 6 o'clock and then they worked out that's not enough hours in the day for riders to actually be able to finish this race. So then like two days into it, they changed it from 6 o'clock finish to a 7 o'clock finish and then four days into it, they changed it from a seven o'clock finish to an eight o'clock at night finish because, again, they were like, oh, we've stuffed up the times. Now people don't have enough time. So I finished day nine of the race and the winners finished end of day eight. And so in the normal time frame, I finished day eight of the race and the winners finished day seven, which is the standard normal that's how normally this race works normally the winners finish the race on day seven and the top 10 finish within the next day day eight and so that's the bracket that I um, fell into was that real top pack of people finishing the race I was exactly 12 hours behind the winners because they finished I think it was they finished at 315 and I finished at like 305 the next day yeah, and I sat 11 hours of penalties. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And what position did you finish? Tenth. Are you happy with that? I am stoked because, yeah. <laughs> because I got 11 hours of penalties and I could explain it, but three of them were vet penalties and a lot of that had to do because I was picking very wild horses and because I was picking very wild horses, they were very scared of the vets. And so a lot of my issues I had was when we came to vetting these horses, every time the vet would approach with his stethoscope to take the heart rate, the horse would spook back and get scared. Now, everyone knows that if you're scared of something, your heart rate is not resting. <laughs> so a lot of the, and then I had to change strategy a bit halfway through the race because I'm like, Picking these feisty horses is fun and they go really well, but it's getting me in trouble because they're not, they're too scared at the end mm. of the race of the vets, not scared to the point that they're doing harm to themselves. Like it's just, it's just not the greatest mix for trying to clear vets quickly. So I ended up the two, the two first penalties you get are two hours each. And then the third one to be told that you're very naughty is a four-hour penalty. So that was four, five, six, seven, eight hours of penalties I sat there. And then the other penalties that made up the 11 hours was overtime, like riding the 15 minutes past and then the 20 minutes past at night. And that's how I accumulated 11 hours. But what they say about the Derby is this, like the Mongol Derby always gives you the race that you need, not the race that you want. So I wanted to win, of course, (laughs) and that was the goal. But the race went, ah, 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 nah, you're not here to win it. You're here for something else. And so I wanted to be in that top pack and I ticked that goal because I did. I got top 10. But because I had 11 hours of penalties, it's 11 hours of sitting around doing nothing, <laughs> is because it's me and I talk to a chair if I have to, I just started talking to all the herders. And even though they don't talk Australian and I don't talk Mongolian, you could still have a conversation. 
and I'd sit around and I'd talk to the herders and I'd pull up my phone and show them photos of like my horses at home and my job I do with the farm and all that and they loved it and I'd show them photos of like the Hereford cows that I farm and they'd take my phone and they'd be like oh my god and they'd take it around to all their herding friends and then they'd go into the girths and give it to their wives and show photos of these cattle that we have in Australia and their minds were blown because over in Mongolia because it's such an extreme country you know they like at the moment it's winter there and it's minus 40 at night animals are tough and normally when animals have to be this tough genetically they get a bit smaller because it's so much easier energy consumption wise they don't have to eat as much grass to keep a smaller body in fitter condition so their cattle are quite small and so when they seen photos of my Hereford cows <laughs> so big and fat they couldn't believe it and um and this was where I really connected with them because a lot of the people that do this race are not like me they're not farmers which is essentially a herder I'm the same as them but I'm just doing it in a different country and this gave me a connection with the herders that no one else got and then all of a sudden I started to get welcomed in like I was a family member not just another rider so I'd get to a horse station and untack and they'd already know who I was because I was wearing a hot pink riding shirt they knew who I was and they'd come up and because word spreads on the Mongolian step quicker than you can ever imagine They've all got Facebook and phones and emails and they all talk to each other. And so I'd rock up to a horse station and they'd be like, cows, cow. And I'd like be like, yeah. And they'd be like, you've got cow. And so I'd pull up my phone, pull up the photo of the Hereford cow. And they'd be like, oh, and they'd grab it and walk off with my phone and show everyone again. And I developed such a special relationship along the way. And all of a sudden it, turned from me picking out horses and me picking like quite the fiery ones to they'd be like no 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 we'll pick your horse for you and there'd be a big discussion and I'd just stand there like a lemon essentially waiting and they'd talk 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 and they'd go back and forth and back and forth because they knew I got vet penalties and if I got another one I'd be disqualified so like we've got to give her a horse that's fast but calm so she can clear vets there'd be a big discussion and then all of a sudden I started getting these incredible horses, these horses that just flew across the country but were so quiet. So I would just hop on these horses and fly across the next leg and they'd all tell me specifically what way to calm the horse down and how to vet them at the end. And so I'd do exactly what they say nearly every time. I'd get to the horse station, the vet would check, yep, already under 56 cleared onto the next one so even though I got all these penalties and I got put quite far back in the pack within three days I'd gone from like 16th place and rode up into like 11th with another girl and then I rode up into 10th and finished the race in 10th because I got all these just exceptional horses because of this relationship that I developed with the herders like I'd rock up to a horse station and you know we we're talking about quick changeovers it kind of changed towards the end because they knew who I was and they're like oh I oh, don't worry about the horse we'll give you a fast one come with us <laughs> and I'd get taken into the girl and um air rag which is fermented mare's milk like they'd give me air rag and give me sweets and like really like love you basically and um the other thing is snuff which they only have for their very best guests. And it's in this like little jar thing. It's not drugs, <laughs> but it's in this little <laughs> jar thing. And it's like tobacco and then they pick herbs from the step and then they grind it down and they put it in the snuff jar. And there's like an etiquette, like 
the man of the house only is allowed to handle the snuff jar and give it to whichever guest he feels like has earned it basically. And so there's an etiquette of how he gives it and how you receive it. And then like you sniff it, like you sniff up the tobacco and you just put like a little bit on your thumb and you sniff it up. And then there's a special way you put the lid back on. Cause if you shut the lid fully, that's really bad luck. <laughs> You've mm. got to leave it slightly ajar and then you sort of like pass it back while holding your own palm back to the man of the house. And so all of a sudden I started getting all these real traditional like, um, etiquettes and treasures started sort of like getting given to me and it was just so special and that's the race that changed my life yet again so to say because I these these people like really welcomed me in they they worked out I'd been in their country before I'd come back they knew that I was essentially a herder I was just from a different country and they just loved it and I loved them and I just the the most special horses and you know, like it's it's hard to describe. It's why I love horses. But when you form a bond with a horse, it's just so special. Like these animals don't have to cart you around the countryside. Like they don't have to at all. They can do whatever the hell they want. And some of them do just like fuck you <laughs> off and say, uh-uh. <laughs> but to form these bonds with these horses and do something so special, it's just phenomenal. There is no feeling on this planet to hop on a wild animal, especially a wild Mongolian horse, and just instantly bond and just fly across 40 kilometres. Like, there's nothing like it. Having a horse giving its absolute all, and you're sitting there like a muppet on its back. <laughs> like, it's just so cool. And then and then you hop off, and then you get welcomed into a family, and you get loved, and then you get put on another extremely special horse. So that's what the, the race became, just so unique. And I came 10th, but I won the race in every way you could possibly win that race. Like yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no way that I did not win that race. But yeah, it was exceptional. And congratulations. Like you really did put in all the hard work before you left. You had everything dialed in and it definitely sounds like you've won the race. It sounds amazing. I've got goosebumps just listening to that last part. That's it's absolutely amazing to hear um, and like it's amazing to hear from you how good it was. What's a takeaway this time? Because you had a few takeaways from the first race. What Looking back at it now, what's a good takeaway that you can give us before we move on to the next part of the conversation? Yeah, well, like the, the, first, the first race I did, like my takeaways were – were life is to be lived you know that was my first one because it was a really a big part of my healing journey and if you don't know about it go back listen to the first one and then come back and listen to this (laughs) but it was a massive massive healing journey you know that first race and it gave me that like I talked about that fire in my belly it gave that back to me and this second race I wasn't expect like I said at the start I wasn't expecting to walk away with again like life-changing affirmations and thoughts in my head and that but this time round like because of the training and the work I'd put in and I worked very hard mentally physically leading up to this race and because it just paid dividends it just has given me such confident confidence within myself to really trust my gut and to really trust myself like 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 I am worth it and and I matter a lot and I'm the one that's going to get me to go places or do things and I don't necessarily have to put that on someone else in the sense of like, you know, I can back myself now and I know that and that's what this race really like gave to me 
is that like uh, without sounding like a big headed prick, but like I, I, I matter and I'm important because of the relationships I formed with the herders, like, you know, they were so interested and invested in me and I was in them. And that's what it's, it's just given me such love for myself because of that. And like, I don't know if I explained that very well, but yeah, like I, I walked away with a fire in my belly that first time. And this time I've walked away with just such confidence and trust within myself that the decisions I make will lead me in the right directions. Like some might be wrong, but I can always backtrack and make the right one after that. Um, so that's what it's given me the second time round. And the other thing it's given me, which is so important, is it's really given me a love of fitness and 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 all things related to like pushing your body and pushing your limits and just doing hard things. Like the derby is a very, very hard thing. But I finished that race and I was like, yeah, wouldn't mind riding a horse. <laughs> like, I just wanted to do more. Like I went on a massive walk the next day because I was like, oh, I just wow. want to do something. Like, and, and the the medical crew were like, you look so good. And I was like, honestly, I feel fine. Like nothing. I was like a little bit like I'd just ridden a thousand Ks. Like I did ride a thousand kilometers and yeah. it was sort of aspects to that. But honestly, I just felt great. And I thought, oh, maybe it's like a bit of a high, like endorphins and that. And I'm like, oh, it'll set in. And so when we got back to the city, like four days later, I was like, all right, it's going to happen now. And I was like, oh, I still feel pretty good. And then when I got back to Australia, I was like, I bet you I'll get really sick. Nah. Oh. <laughs> just felt that, awesome that's crazy so, that's, that's yeah. epic awesome yeah hey, just... um all right so from the last podcast one of the biggest takeaways i got was stepping outside your comfort zone to grow like it was very inspiring for me i even spoke about it on previous podcasts how it inspired me to start achieving other things to have a bit more self-growth and by looking at your journey and following you through the Mongolian Derby and watching you, what you're doing now, it looks like you've grown even more like, and just blown up. So yeah. since the Mongolian Derby, do you still agree with that? And what's happened since then? Oh, absolutely. Like, cause that was my biggest takeaway being like trusting myself to such an, a huge extent has definitely led me down the path of like, well, I'm just backing myself 100%. I love what I do and I love my farming and agriculture and I'll forever do that. But I don't want to be the broken, bent down farmer at 70 years old, having to go out there in 40 degree heat to do whatever it is you have to do, because that's like, that's what has to be done. Yeah. And my love of photography is such a core thing that has just traveled with me throughout my little life and and I do have a gift of telling a story and so I walked away from this derby and I've just started putting the pieces of that together and it's building almost upon itself it's now becoming a little bit of a snowball effect as they say but you know I decided like bugger this like I'm going to launch what I do in my photography and they say, like, you got to niche down. And, well, I've already niched down. Like, I, I am who I am. Um, so, like, you know, my photography is horses and equines and that. But but not just, like, going to Pony Club and taking photos. Like, I like how I've gone to Mongolia and captured, like, the cultural essence of that. And so the main sort of thing that I'm building my business off is is that, is that 
like I'm this unique person that can travel and capture a culture of equines and not just a horse in essence. And from this, I got contacted to do a um, like guest speaking, keynote speaking, whatever you want to call it, event um, to talk about my journey, uh, what we've done in the podcast for the last two now, but essentially condensed it down to 25 minutes, which is very difficult wow. for someone who <laughs> likes talking. <laughs> but I, I did it, you know, I worked and I had to work quite hard to, mm. to how do you tell your story in 25 minutes? But I did it and I, I think I've done it quite well because I've done this talk two times now and it's gone very, very well. And so that's something that I've, I've found that I really enjoy it. I really enjoy getting up, putting a few pretty pictures on display and just walking people through my life essentially and telling the stories if, you know, like like I hit rock bottom, bottom and it was shit and I understand how shit that is, but there is a way out. And for me it was like, the Mongol Derby really is what the way out was. And so I sort of came back from the Derby and I launched my photography as a building phase. I haven't launched it as in like everything shiny and perfect and ready to go. I launched it as in like, Hey guys, this is what I'm doing. I'm selling some of my very unique Mongolian prints. And that was the first phase. And then with this speaking, I sort of stumbled into the second phase, which is people were like, Oh, I love your prints, Kathy, but I, I can't justify spending that much money on a print, but I would love for you to be able to capture my family or my own horse and, and I, can, I can justify spending that money on that. And so that's the phase we're currently in now is um, people are reaching out to me saying, like, I, I'd really love your style of photography. Can you do that with me and my family or me and my horses and that? And so that's the phase we're in now is now I'm launching into prints and photography sessions. And then there's a the next phase which is things that are sort of working along in the background is that like like nothing's official but there's a chance I might be going back to Mongolia next year to capture the race that I had ridden as one of the photographers but nothing set in stone that's not confirmed or anything but that's something that might be occurring which is phenomenal and there's another big race that happens down in Patagonia in Argentina and um I, I there's a potential that I could be following that I have now um, booked a session in New Zealand in April next year where if you're in the farming world, you're sort of aware of it. But in New Zealand, it was very mountainous, lots of mountains. And um, farming, sheep, they take weathers, male sheep, up into the high country in summer to graze. And then every seasonal change, when autumn comes, they have to get these sheep and bring them down. And how they do that is they chop a people and dogs up into the very tops of these mountains and they walk down with their dogs and muster the sheep out. Phenomenal. Like these mountains are proper mountains, like way bigger than our ones here. And so I've got a job to go and capture and photograph that, which is so special. So these are the doors that are opening, you know, like I'm not setting up to be a family photographer. I'm setting up to be, I don't even know if there's a class, but it's almost like adventure photographer, which is fucking cool <laughs> there's no other way to put it it is so cool and it's something that like yeah I love and with that my fitness gets to come on the journey with me I still get to do this fitness because that's going to allow my body and allow my photography business to grow in such a cool direction because I'm this nice little fit capable person that can go to very unique positions and places and capture really cool things because I'm a girl that can hop on a horse with $8,000 worth of camera kit 
and ride that horse to wherever the hell I need to go to get whatever I do. And there's not that many people that can, can, can do that. Like I'm not the world's best horse rider, but I've got heart and I'll do it, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's sort of like Kathy Gabriel, the brand essentially is what's growing of this because it's not just photography. It's not just prints and it's not just sessions. It's growing into all sorts of little different cool things, which is fun, awesome, yeah. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so a ton of follow-up questions about that. But while I remember, uh, Jimmy Chan, I'll send you a link. He is. Yes. A- oh, I love him. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Yeah. He's yeah. the OG. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Um, I obsess over him. Yeah. Extreme photography. <laughs> Some of his photos are just, you don't even know how he gets in those positions, especially the rock climbing photos. They're absolutely epic. Yeah. I, look, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever see me swinging <laughs> off a rock face. Um, Dawn wall style. Nah, I couldn't think of anything yeah. more terrifying, to be honest. I don't know if we'll go that extreme. We'll just stick to horse extreme. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Jimmy yeah. Chang. Oh. <laughs> Out in Mongolia, I still feel like that is very extreme. So you've been, been invited to come back and be photographer for the race and not actually compete. Yeah, well, yeah, nothing's official yet. It's just like, you know, talks are in the line. Um, but, yeah, very unique position because of my horse riding abilities. Um, mm. It's going to give a very different sort of photography that they've previously had on that race. They haven't really had anyone being able to photograph and ride their horses, whether combining the two will lead to, like, the photos that you, you don't see of the derby, which is what all the riders talk about all the time, is mm. how cool would it be if they could capture this? But there's been no one that could. And it would just give such a different flair on the stories that then we can tell with the images we would have after doing that race. Um, oh. Yeah, very, very special. That would be absolutely amazing to see. I spoke about it in the last podcast, yeah. how epic your photos actually are. Like your the photos you even just post off your phone onto social media are absolutely amazing. And anybody can yeah. take a photo, but not everybody can make them look as good as you do. So was this whole photography business side of things a part of that or is it just like this is my passion and I want to monetize it? Like, yeah, basically, like, like yeah, sort of like my photography has always been in the background. It was ever since high school we did like a um, photography block at art basically is where it started and we had film cameras and we had a black and roll um, film that we summer holidays we went and captured like black and white images on the film and then we processed them at school and that is when I fell in love with photography because I was just like this is pretty cool and so then that's how like it, it grew in the background and then when I went off and traveled Australia working in ag that's when I kept like documenting what I was doing and then like a lot of people start off I just like started a page to share just my photos on for family and friends to that's where that is like go look at it there and that's where it sort of just grew and people like oh wow these images are so special because I was capturing like northern Australia cattle stations southern Australia big shearing sheds and just the heart and the core of what a lot of people sort of go to what Australia is you know like Australiana sort of is like the 
subtexts of genres of what that is. Um, and so that's where it started. And I, I just was, I got told by a lady when I was up north and she came and she photographed our station work we were doing. I forget her name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Should it name and shame? And um, like, cause I was riding along doing the horsework always with a camera in my bag. And I, when she was coming out, she was in the chopper and that doing photography of us. And I said to her, Oh, I love it. I'd love to make photography my career. And she said, don't do it. She's like, you'll never make money. You'll always be broke. Don't do it. And I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> and it stuck with me. And I thought, Oh, well, she's been doing it for like 40 something years. Cause she was like 60 something when she came out. And I was like, oh, if there's not much money in it, then maybe I shouldn't pursue it. And so I sort of just stuck it on the back burner more or less. And I was like, oh, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and just have photography as like my passion and just as a, a good hobby. And um, it was after the first derby and coming back with the photos I'd captured on that one, going like, oh, I really loved that. Like, that was great. I'd love to. I'd love that to be something I could make money off, but I, I'm never going to be able to. And then it was after this second one that I was like, no, like I have something very special here. And yeah, I am just another photographer, which is a very oversaturated business, but I'm a very, very unique photographer. And I am very good at what I do too. And I, I, I'm, and that's what, that's where the confidence has come from is I look at what I'm doing and I'm like, no, this is very good and I can do it with ease. It just comes so natural to me to capture what I capture. Um, yeah. So, and I don't, I edit my photos, but I don't over edit. Like the editing process is so simple because what I capture is so, I don't want to use perfect because that makes me sound pretty stuck up. But yeah, <laughs> like the images are so easy because it's just, it's there. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely fair to say that they are perfect because again, even the iPhone photos that you take are better than everybody else's and you can't, you can manipulate them, but you can really tell when you manipulate like iPhone photos. Yeah. Um, a photo. Yeah. Yeah. I had a very similar experience getting into the fitness industry. So I first had my Cert 3 and 4 in fitness when I was 19, but I was always told even by PTs and people in the industry that don't do it. There's no money here. You just end up working another job. And that's why I stayed in the building industry yeah. for so long because that's where the money was and that's a real job. Yeah. And again, same thing. It wasn't until I hit sort of my version of rock bottom and I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Like, and you can make money if you want to. It's and then like obviously fitness was a very good hobby of mine. I did it. I did train other people in the background. Didn't really make money off it because I wasn't invested in doing it full time. Um, but it was very scary from transitioning from a hobby from something that everybody is telling you don't do it because it, there's no money into actually diving in yeah. and doing it full time. What was that like for you? Was it just a no brainer? Yeah, well, like, um, well, I still am doing agriculture. Um, yeah. So for me, like, you know, I, I don't have the whole like, Oh shit, there goes the paycheck. Like, I hope this works. I am like, the job I have, which I think I described on the first podcast, is a very easy job. Um, so I manage a 1,300-acre um, beef property. We have Hereford cows, spring calving, very simple, very easy property to manage. Um, so, And it's not a full-time job. I don't earn – and I also don't earn a full-time wage. I earn, like, what would be considered a part-time wage off the property. So for me, it's 
I'm so lucky. It's so easy for me to throw all my energy and time into my photography because I can still manage this farm to the excellent standard that it's managed in and but put all my energy in photography. And I can. I'm doing both very simply because, because I've set up the property um, so good <laughs> that it is so easy to just like, you know, some days I work two, three days on the property a week and the rest I just that's my time to do to do what I want to do and before the derby that was training Mm. you know I was spending six seven hours training and when I say training that's not me like with my heart rate at 180 for fucking seven hours like I wasn't doing that um but like I was training as in like I'd do resistance training in the morning I'd do like a yoga sort of pilates session at midday and then I'd go on like a big hike or a horse run in the arvos but i wouldn't do that every day but yeah you know like i was spending all my focus was the derby so i've sort of transitioned derby focused time to um like my business my my own business now yeah yeah so i was more getting that so if imagine that money wasn't the issue like was it hard to put yourself out there into here's my phone no buy them no No, 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 it wasn't hard. And I, and this is where um, it would have been hard if I, before this last race, it would have been very hard because I would have been like, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. Oh, geez, I don't know. Like I've only been doing photography for 15 years, but is that enough? <laughs> is that good enough? Like, I don't know if that's enough. Like, but because of this second time derby and the confidence and the trust in myself, I like that's where I've, I've walked away with the confidence to be like, no, like I am good. Like everyone's always telling me I'm good. And they're not, not telling me that to just be nice. They're telling me that to say like, Hey, these are really good and we love them. Like, you know, you're good at this. And yeah, like they're not just saying that to be polite. Mm. Um, and so that's why this time round, it's like, no, like I, I know I'm, I'm more than good enough because I have had 15 years at least of doing photography. Like I'm 32 now and so, yeah, it would be 15 years because I started working and photographing, like, not full-time, but, like, from 17 years onwards, yeah. Um, yeah. So for somebody that hasn't done the Mongolian race that's thinking about a business, because, like I said, we've got a lot of listeners now that are sort of dabbling in their interests and trying to make money out of their interests – What's a take? Like, obviously, there's something's changed in between before and after the Mongolian Derby. If you could sort of give somebody that, you know, that power, that click, so they yeah. can, okay, yes, I can do this. What would that be? Well, because like for me, like the like an, another takeaway from the Derby is that your life is your own life, and it's no one else's. So you could keep spending 40 50 60 hours of your time each week and giving that to someone else or someone else's company or you could invest that time into yourself and I know that I am more than happy to stay up to two o'clock in the morning on my laptop for myself but if I had to do that for my boss I would not do that (laughs) like you know (laughs) so that's where like the trust and the backing myself is also because like it's my life and I don't want to just work and retire at 70 and go, I get to live my life now. Like, no, that's shit. Like, you don't want to be 60, 70 years old going, oh, woo, I get to go live my dream now because you've done the work. Like, 
fuck that in essence. Like, like, especially now I feel like, like I feel so strong and fit at 30 and I want to be able to take advantage of how good I feel and do all the cool shit I want to do now. Like, and do that. Like, of course I hopefully at 60, 70 years old are doing cool shit too, but you know, and that's where like, in terms of like, like trusting yourself and backing yourself. And if you have a passion and something you're interested in and realizing that like, sometimes I'm doing photography stuff and it's shit and it's not enjoyable because you're, it's not supposed to be 100% of your time is not supposed to be like, la, 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 la. like it's not like there's shit times when you're just like, Oh my God, but at least it's for you. It's all you investing in yourself because when you invest in yourself in all ways, like whether that be business, fitness, and mentally, it just it comes out every pore, you know, like people that surround you, like love you more. And like, you'll just meet more people that really click with you with doing that because you just like, like when you trust and just love yourself, then it just, it just explodes out of you. A big yeah ball of fluff <laughs> yeah but but that's what I mean by like coming back to like you know like trusting yourself or like what is it that you would take to really like launch your own business that's it it's your life and I just it's I always go back to it's your life whenever I hear someone complaining about like oh I can't be bothered going to work this week and oh this and that it's your life. It's no one else's to change or to alter and no one else is going to go up to you and be like, hey, like, you know, you should quit my job and go do, like, you know, no one's going to do that. Like, it's your life to choose to do what it is that you want to do with it and, like, to do something that you're actually interested in and passionate in where you get the financial benefits from is so important, like, yeah, yeah, because when you do go into shit times and when the money might not be coming in, like you're still doing something you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about it, you will always find a way to make that profitable because yeah. you always will. Because someone said to me recently, like, this might be a bit too hippie for some people, but money is energy and it comes and it goes. And it comes and goes with how you're sort of like what you're releasing as well. Like if you're open, releasing and pushing, the money's just going to to come in naturally with that. Like I'm not saying I'm going to earn fucking a hundred grand every year or hundreds of thousands every year and drive a real flash car. I'm still in a farm bus that's covered in cobwebs and shit at the moment. But like, you know, yeah, money is an energy. And when you start thinking about it that way and you look back on like your past however many years of life and where money's become essential whether that be when you were younger or when you became an adult and 18 and left school you do see how the flow of money is an energy and that like you don't need all the money you just need enough to sustain what it is that your core beliefs on your life is too you know like a lot of people say to me like oh it's so expensive to travel and that and it's actually not like it's not that expensive to fly to mongolia and back again cost me fourteen hundred dollars it's not a lot of money like it's like it's not a lot of money in the scheme of things. Not when most people earn fourteen hundred bucks in what like a week and a half of work. Mm. A lot, like a lot of people. Like yeah, for me um, it's half a month's wage. But yeah, like money's not. Yeah, when you start breaking down money and costs, you realize how little it actually does cost to live a very fulfilling life. Yeah, one hundred percent, and I. 100% agree with that money is energy 
Um, yeah. We, we did, Mac and I sort of did a video about living a minimal life and the, yeah. the less things we've actually owned, the happier we've gotten. And yeah. people sort of get that mixed up and think they need a lot of things to make them happy. But anyway, that's another topic. I'm glad you yeah. brought up, <laughs> I'm glad you brought up time because time, like, I am obsessed with time. The whole reason why I look after my body so well is so I can have more time. Like um, I think it's very underutilized and very overlooked. So um, how do you delegate time? Like obviously you're doing these uh, talks now, you're going and presenting in location. So you've got that, you've got photography, you've got the farm, you've got life, you've got to look after yourself. How are you managing all this stuff and still looking after your body and doing all that? Yeah, you know, it's it's that annoying thing that people say. <laughs> like, I've heard it on podcasts before. It used to give me the shits. And they're like, oh, when you start looking after yourself, then more time just comes. <laughs> and it's kind of true. Like, you know, when you look after yourself, you have so much more time even though you might spend an hour or even half an hour exercising in the morning, the amount of time that creates for me throughout the rest of the day astonishes me. And it still does now. Like after the Derby, I took about a month off training because I was like for almost three years, I was just obsessed with training, not overtraining, but every, everything I was thinking about was related to training essentially and so I took a month off and what I noticed in that month of not actually physically having training sessions every day was how unenergized I became and how much fucking time I wasted because of it like I wasted so much time like I'd have lunch at one and then I'd be like oh I'm a bit tired (laughs) you know like I became so unenergized because I wasn't like taking that time to to nourish myself in a way that I thrive off. And so what I find is that if I wake up in the morning, I do my I love to have a coffee in the morning and eat my porridge and just chill for about half an hour. Then I get up and then I'll do a training session. And that training session might look like anything. Sometimes I'm like, I do know my body needs a blow because I might have had a particularly hard day on the farm. So I might just be like a like an, a bit of an energised yoga movement for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Other mornings, I love my weights. I do. I love, especially after you're training, I just love like bench presses and just like shoulder presses and push-ups. And I just love weights and like those windmill things. I love the windmill things. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, so in the morning I'll do like 40 minutes of like whatever it might be. And that creates so much time for me in the afternoons because the afternoons and people talk about the afternoon slump and the afternoon this and that. And that for me, when I train is my now my most productive time. You know, I'll get up, I'll do my training thing, and then I'll go do what is life on a farm feed potty calves, feed horses, go down, check bulls, fix a fence that the bulls are probably destroyed, go check water, go check another mob of cows, go shift cows, like whatever the farmy thing is, is like the farm things in the morning. And then I'll come back to my hut because I live in a hut, not a house, <laughs> the bush <laughs> at like 11, 30, 12, and then I'll have lunch. And then like my mind flicks on to like my little business side, you know, and then I go, right, I'll get some emails done. I'll work on my website. I'll do this. I'll do that. I love learning. I do lots of online learning things of whatever takes my fancy at the moment. It's very boring. The thing I'm most bad at, accounting stuff, money. Oh, 
tax GST, I hate it. So I forced myself to learn it and doing like a bookkeeping course. <laughs> anyway, but this is what I mean by time, you know, and, and this is where my life is super flexible because I do work my own hours. But there was a lot of time in my life I've wasted from knockoff. And knockoff might be four or five or six or whatever time you knock off. And then that period of knockoff to when you go to bed. So it might be, say, five o'clock to 10 o'clock. And that time period there, I have wasted a lot. And that time period there now is sometimes super productive for me. And um, that's where the whole nourishing yourself is where I talk about, like, my time's expanded. Because I just find that when I take care of myself in whatever way I might need, then that is when like the rest just flows out and you don't feel as tired and as negative and that because of it. Like, yeah, you've really got to, it's like you guys talk about it all the time and so many other people do, but you've really got to spend, even if it's only half an hour a day of doing something purely for you. Like, yeah. Yep. hundred percent agree. And like you said, we talk about it all the time. Um, oh, damn it. Just left my head. Uh, so your business, where is that at? So obviously you've got all these amazing job opportunities coming in, all that sort of stuff. Is it just you learning and implementing for yourself or you're looking at Oh, yeah, people? it's totally by the seat of my pants. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, when um, I got this first, like, call up about, like, um, a key- keynote speaking, they're like, what do you charge? I'm like, oh, I don't know. So I Googled it. <laughs> You know, because you don't like, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I jumped online and I did a bit of research and I was like, well, I'm not an actor, so I can't charge 50 grand, can I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, like, you so you sort of just, yeah, you, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> but like, yeah, you just, you just, you just work it out because you kind of have to. And Google, honestly, is fucking amazing. You can find out anything you need from Google, YouTube, you can just find it out and suss it out and work it out. And then the other main thing I go off, and this is probably getting like a bit financial, is what are you worth per hour? And so that doesn't, and that just breaks down into any job, any creative, any space, whatever you're doing, podcasting, fitness, farming, whatever it, what do you want to earn per hour? Especially when you go take the tax off it, because you always got to pay tax. What do you want to be paid? And then when you get down to that, then it's so easy to quote or financial anything off that. Like, and so that's like my keynote speaking, you know. Um, what was my last event? Um, I did it at Geelong. So that's about an eight and a half hour drive. And it was for 25 minutes at night. So that's not much work, 25 minutes. So you go, oh, do you charge $100? Like, well, no, because it's two days of my time. So I've driven from my place down there. I have accommodation for the night. I do the speaking event and then I drive back. And so what do you value yourself at for two days? And then it's like, well, because I do work a job, I have to go, well, the $530 I would have earned for those two days, I need that back. And then I need to travel. So I have to get my my paid time for traveling and for fuel and car maintenance and see, so put that on that. And so that's sort of like what I like, as in like things come in and you have to work it out. But once you work out what you're worth per hour, you can work out anything off that. I find it just, it yeah, I just, anything comes off that. And that could be 
you can implement that in any single way that you might. It'll it'll fit into anyone's life. Like you can be a dog walker <laughs> or a journalist. Like, yeah, once you work out that basic figure, the rest just comes. And that's what I find with like my, my photography business and keynote speaking and this and that. It's just that like I'm just finding it actually relatively easy to work out what I need because it's just everything's worked off that base. What am, what am I worth? And then off that. And then if something does it, you don't have to say yes to everything. Someone asks you for something and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. Say no. No, sorry, that's not my jam. Like, and if you know someone who might be interested in that, say, "Oh, I'm really sorry, but that's not something I'm interested in." He's this other person; they might be able to help you. Like, yeah, because yeah. I've had a few different people ask me some things, and I'm like, "No, no thanks." <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad. And you then said- that's again, like knowing your worth. Knowing yeah. your worth is just vital. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people, when they first start doing this stuff, they don't, don't ask how much do I need and what am I worth or how much do I need, want to make? And they yeah. just start going and doing things and, oh, that didn't work. And we'll just like, how do you know it didn't work? Because you didn't have a goal set in the first place. Yeah. Um, coming back to time before we start wrapping this up, because we've been, we could, again, we could make it two hours. on forever, but, yeah. yeah but, <laughs> So just to sort of wrap things up a little bit, let's go back to time. So I'll see a lot of people, you know, start a business and they start doing a few posts on social media and it's like, oh, that didn't work. And it's like, well, you only done a couple of posts. Like, have you been putting time and effort into the business? Um, what, like, what do you think people, how should people be putting time and effort into the passion that they want to monetize is what I'm getting at there. Yeah, so I was at this big event, Rural Women's Day, and it's about like networking stuff. And there was another lady there called Emily, and she runs this um, woolen clothing company, Iris and Wool, and she has a story. And that's what she was talking about. And she's like, whatever your passion project is, if you're selling stamps and you're just selling stamps and showing photos of stamps, well, you're probably not going to get much interest. But if there's a story and you explain why you're passionate about the stamps, people relate to stories. And so for me, like there's the story of like my past, which we talk about in the first podcast of when my partner got killed in the territory and then my mother's cancer diagnosis and me hitting rock bottom. And that is a part of my story. And so when people understand the story and how it relates to your present now, that's what people connect with. And so that's how, like, if you put a couple of posts up about stamps on social media, if you have a story to go with it, Pete, that's when people make the connection. It's, and our world is about connections, you know. It's mm. what drives everything is connection. Um, so that's where if as you've got to tell the story of why you want to do what it is that you're trying to get people to, um, oh, what's the word, like, financially support there's a special word for it yeah commit oh sorry there's a fancy word anyway but yeah but if you yeah yeah Yeah. if you if you tell your story as to why that's when the connections happen and that's when that's when magic occurs and because like emily with this um woolen clothing company she has her story is so personal and so deep but she tells it so openly and people just connect instantly Mm. and she just won the big shine awards and um, she's doing massive successes. And, yeah, and that's because that's what she was talking about at this um, 
networking thing that we all attended. Uh, it's it's really important to tell your story, to make that connection of why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, and just to bring it back to your photos again, if um, when you launch your photos um, just after Mongolian Derby, if you've seen them, like you can just tell that there's a story there and I think that's what you do really well. You can take a photo and tell the story and I don't think a lot, a lot of people can't do that. So I yeah. think that's why you are such a good photographer and you will do amazing things. And let, like, let's finish the show off. What's next? What's happening? Obviously, you've talked about some amazing photo opportunities, <laughs> uh, photography opportunities and all that sort of stuff. What's next? Yeah, well, I'd love to say some crazy fucking thing I'm about to do, but there's nothing like Mongol Derby-esque on the horizon. But, yeah, like what's next is kind of also just blowing my mind. Like the like the snowball effect of what's occurring is what's happening next. Like like things, things like, yeah, things, are, the cogs are turning. So I don't know what's next, but bring it on. Like, you know, like cool things are only going to happen. I am actually going back to Mongolia next year to go to the Tatsun tribe up near Siberia, reindeer riding stuff. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, Expect some epic happy. photos from that. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, what's next is, like, yeah, just living life and just letting it take take you where, where it's go, whatever it wants to do with you in a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can people follow this life journey of yours? Where do you want people to go? And- the best place... The best place I'm most active on is Instagram. So just Kathy underscore Gabriel and you'll find me smiling with a horse, doing horse stuff. And, yeah, that's where I just share anything and everything is there. And from that, you can easily link to my website, Facebook and all that from there. So that's the that's the best place. Or you can even just type Kathy Gabriel in Google and it comes up with heaps of shit now. So that's pretty cool. So, yeah. <laughs> You're Google worthy. That's how you know you've made yeah. it. Oh, I know. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, Any last thoughts for the people listening? Not really because, like, there's so many quotable quotes you could say, I guess. But, yeah, it's just... It's just having that faith in yourself. It really is. Like, just just believe in yourself and and that'll lead you to whatever it is you actually want to do with your time. And, yeah. Mm. I'm going to finish off with the quote you gave us last time. Um, Again, you don't need to go and do the Mongolian Derby. You just need to get outside your comfort zone just that little bit. And it does empower you. Like you said it, I did it. It empowered me to achieve more and do more. So I can't recommend everybody enough just to get outside your comfort zone, try something new. It doesn't have to be something huge. It doesn't have to be a massive race. Just like you said, just a little bit out of your comfort zone and you start growing. Yeah. Awesome. Again, Kathy, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, another great episode. I enjoyed the first one. I've just enjoyed this one. So I can't wait to listen back and edit it all and get all the good little nuggets out of it. Um, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Obviously, if you made it to the end, you got something out of this episode as I did as well. So if you could send the link to this podcast to one friend that you know will get something out of it as well, I would appreciate it a lot and I'm sure they will appreciate you as well. Thanks again and we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.